0: All right. We are in a series on the book of Daniel. Yeah. We uh we we've been going and we're just going to dive right in it this morning. We are in chapter 4 today, and today I want to focus on the the character of Nebuchadnezzar. Can you say Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. So, Uh, The story of the book of Daniel, these these people of God have been taken into exile. Babylon, this major empire, has conquered them. They're in exile, and the king of the Babylonian empire is this guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon is the empire in the ancient Near East, in the late 600s and 500s BC in the ancient Near East. Nebuchadnezzar is the king for decades of this empire. And and I want to talk about his story today. Here's a do we have a picture? Here's a picture of Nebuchadnezzar, an engraving from the day. And decades into his reign, uh decades into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Let me find the book of Daniel real quick. There's this account where Daniel, not Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has this he he's been he's been king, he's been emperor for decades and he's this break with reality. He has a break with reality and we read this. It says He was driven away, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, that means he slept outdoors, until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So here's a man, most powerful man in the ancient Near East for decades. ruling. And then something happens. He has this break with reality. And now he is living in the wilderness like a wild animal. What happened? How did this man get here? What is going on? Today I want to look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I want to follow his journey, see where he came from, see where he ended up, and, uh, and see what how scripture dealt with him and what that might say about who God is and what he is up to in this world. So we're going to begin at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's story. So Nebuchadnezzar, this, uh, who ends up being king of Babylon, he's born sometime around this year 634 B.C. So 2,600 some years ago, his name Nebuchadnezzar means, "O oh God Nabu, protect my firstborn son. He's named after this god. You know, there's many gods, polytheistic system, many gods. One of the gods, Nabu, his dad really liked. And so he's named after the god, Nabu. And he's the firstborn son of this guy by the name of Nabopalassar. You say Nabopalassar? All right, let's say it like you mean it. Nabopalassar. So this is his dad, Nabopalassar. And Nabopalassar, he's a local military political leader in, um, in Babylon. But at the time... Uh, Babylon was not an empire yet. It was just this kind of this, this city under the rule of Assyria. Assyria is this whole other kingdom that ruled the ancient Near East at the time. Assyria, when Nebuchadnezzar was born, was the empire of the day. Here's a map of the Assyrian empire controlling much of the ancient Near East. Now, so Nebuchadnezzar, is born, his dad's Nabopolassar. Well, Nabopolassar, he is an ambitious man. And in, the, these, in these decades, the Assyrian Empire is weakening. It's got weak leadership. It's cracking. And, uh, and Nabopolassar, in the year 625, um, get, takes Babylon and some and allies and they revolt against the Assyrian Empire. So at the time, Nebuchadnezzar is 10 years old. And his dad is leading this revolt against the largest empire in the ancient Near East. And they throw they throw them off. They get they get freedom. They they get they, they re- get free of the shackles of the Assyrian Empire. And so for the next twenty years, Nabopolassar, the leading Babylon and and their allies, are fighting and pushing back the Assyrian Empire. I mean, can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar? He's like in his he's going to middle school or whatever. I mean, I don't know that they had that, but he's you know he's going up and his he, he's growing up and his dad is leading. Babylon against the largest empire in the known world at the time. I mean, what a, what a strange way to grow up, right? So into his 20s, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a military leader in the Babylonian Empire. And this whole, you know, this whole conflict with Assyria, the former great empire, and Babylon, the up-and-coming empire, it all comes to a head in 605 B.C. at this town called Carchemish. Famous battle in the ancient Near East. And so uh, I think, let's see the next map. We got Carchemish up there. It's on the Euphrates River. Today it's the border of Turkey and Syria. And, uh, and so what you had is you had Nabopolassar leading Babylon, they had formed alliances with the Medes, the Persians, the Scythians and they're on one side, and on the other side is Assyria, the former great empire, and they've, they've allied with Egypt, this other great empire of the day, and so it's this huge battle at Carchemish, 605, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is 30 years old at the time, he's leading one of the contingents of the Babylonian empire, leads them across the Euphrates takes on the Egyptian army, conquers the Egyptian army, drives them back to Egypt, the rest of the alliance takes on the Assyrian army, conquers the them. And so in 605 BC, Nabopolassar and the Babylonian Empire conquer the Assyrians and they become the empire in the ancient Near East. And so suddenly, let's go to the next map, suddenly now Babylon controls all this territory that was formerly the Assyrian Empire. Now it's what historians call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. 605. But get this, months after just months after, Nebuchadnezzar had this coming-of-age moment, defeating Egypt, and, and nabal you know forms the Babylonian Empire. Just months after that, at the age of 53, Nabal-Palassar, is Nebuchadnezzar's dad, dies of natural causes. And so suddenly, at age 30, Nebuchadnezzar finds himself as king and emperor of the largest empire in the known world. Is that wild? What were you doing when you were 30? <laughs> or maybe, what do you hope to be doing when you're 30? <laughs> Controlling an ancient Near Eastern empire. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. All of a sudden he's in charge of this thing, right? It's wild. So, well, what does he do? Well, he starts trying to firm up control, solidify control. One of the things he does, hit the capital city, Babylon... It's been neglected all these years of fighting. there's been no it's kind of been neglected, and so he goes back and he builds up the capital Babylon, he builds these giant walls that historians would write about later. these gates that you can still the East star gate. you can still see it today. Uh, he builds temples. one of the temples he built uh, was this temple to Marduk. Marduk is one of the gods of Babylon. there's all these different gods like I mentioned Nabu was one of them, but the chief god of the Babylonians was Marduk and uh, and and so. Nebuchadnezzar builds this temple to Marduk, and in fact, it's so interesting, just to kind of get an idea of how Nebuchadnezzar saw himself. Let's go to that next image where, so this image of Nebuchadnezzar, you want to know where it came from? The idol to Marduk, the idol of Marduk, the chief Babylonian god, the idol of Marduk, in the the eye of Marduk, that's what that image came from. So into the eye of Marduk, Nebuchadnezzar had his own image carved, and it's, and he's, it's like he's saying, "You know that you know our chief God Marduk? I am the one he thinks about always. I am the apple of his eye." And not in a sense of Marduk loves everybody, but it is me. I mean, what kind of he has a high view of himself, yes? This is Nebuchadnezzar. So also this is probably if uh, historians think maybe this is when the hanging gardens of Babylon were built. But this is Marduk, or this is Nebuchadnezzar building up Babylon. The other thing he did now that he's got this empire is he's trying to secure the borders of the empire. And Egypt continues to be a threat. And the land bridge between Egypt and Babylon ran through what? Well-known area. Israel. Yeah. Right. So he goes, so to control this land bridge between him and Egypt, this threat, he goes to Israel. Uh, then it was the territory of Judah. And uh, he conquers Jerusalem to make Judah his vassal state. Goes to Jerusalem 597, so eight years into his reign. 597, conquers Jerusalem. And he takes, he takes to kind of keep them in line, he takes a bunch of teenagers back as prisoners in exile to Babylon. And so this is where Nebuchadnezzar's story intersects with the story of Daniel. Because Daniel chapter 1 tells the story of these teenagers, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being taken as exiles to Babylon, and then being trained in Nebuchadnezzar's court. So what I want to do now is... okay. So that's kind of where Nebuchadnezzar came from. Now over the next... Daniel chapters 1 through 4 kind of pick up there with the conquering of Jerusalem and carry on the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And so I want to look at... I want to look at how the book of Daniel continues on the story of this pagan Babylonian king. Okay? So we're going to continue on. Now we're picking up. Now we're in the book of Daniel. So Daniel 1 tells a story where Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered this area to secure his borders, took these people um, into exile, these teenagers. And one of the things the book of Daniel is concerned to talk about is how does Nebuchadnezzar relate to the God of these exiles? Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so the impression we get from Daniel 1 is that Nebuchadnezzar is oblivious to this God. He doesn't know anything about Yahweh. His only interaction is with these teenagers who happen to worship Yahweh. And this is what, in Daniel 1, the end of Daniel 1, we learn about what he thinks of these teenagers. So these teenagers, Daniel, um, Daniel Sederach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've gone through the, the, the training in the court. And at the end of Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar meets them, interviews them, and and we read, In every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king, Nebuchadnezzar, questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So Daniel 1, kind of to summarize it, Nebuchadnezzar at this point, oblivious to Yahweh, the God of Israel, but somewhat impressed with these teenagers who worship Yahweh, But probably he doesn't think, oh, you're so wise because of your God. He probably thinks, oh, you're so wise because you went through my educational system. Right? That's what he thinks. So this is, he's pretty oblivious. End of chapter one. Well, into chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has his first real encounter with the God of these exiles. So into chapter two, uh, and we, we heard a couple messages on this a few weeks ago. Nebuchadnezzar, he starts having these nightmares. He dreams. It's a dream of a statue that's getting knocked over and smashed. And he's causing him anxiety. He's like, am I that statue? Is my kingdom that statue? What's going on? And so he, he calls his advisors and wise men. And he, says, he says, I want you to uh, interpret this dream for me. But more than that, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream. And if you don't, I'm going to execute you. So, uh, yeah. So... They're like, we can't do that. Well, Daniel is one of the wise men, and so his life's in danger. And so Daniel says, you know, I can't do that on my own. I'm going to pray. He prays. God shows him the dream, comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, I can't tell you the dream, but God showed it to me. Let me tell you what it is. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, interprets it. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, wow, that's incredible. And so at the end of chapter two, we get Nebuchadnezzar's impression of what just took place. And this is what it says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. So clearly, now he's not oblivious to this God of Israel, Yahweh, anymore. But clearly he hasn't got it yet. I mean, one, he seems to be worshiping Daniel, which that that's the signal he hasn't got it yet. And then and then his main impression seems to be your god is the god who reveals mysteries. I mean, imagine imagine it from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. He's grown up with all these different gods, Marduk, Nabu, all these other ones. And so now he's encountered Yahweh, the god of these exiles. And he's like, oh yeah, okay, I can admit one more God, and your God happens to be the one that reveals the mysteries. Great, thank you, glad, glad for your help, right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't end there. Chapter 3, he has another encounter with this God of the exiles. Chapter 3, we heard about just last week. And in chapter 3, chapter three what happens is three of these exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... They're in the province of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar has actually built a statue. He's ordered all his leaders to come worship the statue. Uh, not over the whole empire, but this one province around the capital city. And, uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've, they've been serving in the royal court. But they're like, we cannot worship this statue. That is, that is a step too far. And they say, we refuse to worship this statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar, being a violent megalomaniac ancient ruler, says, then I will throw you in my brick kiln. And I will incinerate you. So he he takes them. He doesn't. His soldiers take them and throw them into this furnace, you know, uh, over 2,000 degrees. But the incredible thing is they don't burn up. God rescues them. And they come out of the fire unsinged. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, wow, what just happened? And at the end of chapter 3, we again get his impression of this encounter with Yahweh. And at the end of chapter 3, he says this. He's, 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 ordering a, uh, he's sending out a decree to his kingdom. And he says, Therefore I, Nebuchadnezzar, decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces He's he's not yet found the the peaceful way of Jesus here, clearly. Be cut into pieces in their houses. Be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. And what I think he's really saying is that for no other God can thwart me in this way. No other God can thwart my plans in this way. I mean, imagine, once again, imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar. You've grown up. Your dad was an empire builder. You're, you are the most powerful man in the known world. You've always worshipped all these different gods. Now you've encountered this, this Yahweh who, who saved his exiles from the fire. Do you really? It's not that Nebuchadnezzar wants to worship this god, but what Nebuchadnezzar, he, what Nebuchadnezzar thinks is, here's someone who can resist and stop me from accomplishing what I want to accomplish. I wanted to incinerate these. He stopped me. And so he does what a military ruler would do. He tells all his people, don't mess with this God. Don't cross this God. That'll get us in trouble. So don't cross him or you'll have to deal with me. So he's gone from oblivious. Then, okay, maybe this God's the revealer of mysteries. To now this God is a God who can stop me from accomplishing what I want to accomplish. And now we come to Daniel chapter 4. And Daniel chapter 4 is the grand finale of Nebuchadnezzar's story. Because after Daniel chapter 4, we don't read anything else about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. This is the finale of his story. And so in Daniel chapter 4, we pick up with the story. And again, Nebuchadnezzar is having nightmares. Earlier he had the nightmares about the statue falling over. Now he's having nightmares about a tree getting chopped down. Very, you know, similar to the statue. Of all, but now, and he's, he's like, am I the tree? Is my kingdom the tree? Are we going to get chopped down? And so again, he goes to his advisors. He says, what does this dream mean? Will you tell me what this dream means? This time he tells them dream, fortunately for them. But again, they're, they're like, no, we, we don't know what this dream means. And again, he calls Daniel. Daniel, help me out. You've interpreted my dream in the past. Will you inter- tell me what this dream means? And Daniel says this. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. He says, you are that tree. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the time has come for God to do an act of severe mercy in your life. Nebuchadnezzar, the time has come for you no longer to worship these other made-up gods. The time has come for you no longer to worship yourself. God is calling your name. And God wants you to turn to him, to make him the center of your life, to turn away from these other things that control you and to trust him and worship him with all your heart. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's going to happen. God's going to do this severe mercy in your life. He's going to, he's going to ha, you're going to have this break with reality, Nebuchadnezzar. And you've been worshipping yourself. You've been worshipping these, these, these idols of stone and wood. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, that makes people animal-like when they do that. And, he, and in fact, Nebuchadnezzar, for you, you're going to literally become like the animals. You're going to go out and live in the wilderness and eat grass and look like an animal. And Nebuchadnezzar, it will only be when you turn and acknowledge the living God. Your full humanity will be restored, Nebuchadnezzar. He's calling your name, Nebuchadnezzar. Would you listen? And Daniel actually says it. He says these exact words. He says, he says, Would you acknowledge that heaven rules? And heaven there is a stand-in for the living God. God. Would you acknowledge that God rules? Renounce your sins by doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity, your peace, your flourishing will continue. Well, Nebuchadnezzar uh, he's one of those people that learns better from experience than the words of others, and so he basically he just blows off. He just doesn't. He's like, whatever. I'm going to keep living the way I want to live. And 12 months pass, and we read that 12 months later, he's on the roof of one of his palaces, and he's up there, he's surveying all these buildings, you know, I was telling you all that stuff that he built, he's known as the magnificent, he's surveying all these things he built, and he's saying, what a great emperor I am, I am amazing. And at that moment, we read, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And here's where we pick up with what we started the morning with. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. We're told that seven times pass. And we don't know if that means seven days, seven months, seven years, or just the fullness of time necessary. But in verse 34, at the end of that time, I Nebuchadnezzar and apparently that even though he's he had this break with reality some part of them some part of him still had a choice to make some part of him still had a decision which way would he go but I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored and then I praised the most high I honored and glorified him who lives forever and then he quotes Psalm 145 His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And and Nebuchadnezzar, it says he, he honors, he glorifies, he worships Yahweh, this God who's been pursuing him. And in fact, the entirety of the way this this chapter four, the grand finale of Nebuchadnezzar's life is told, the way it's told emphasizes this. I mean Chapter 4 of Daniel is fascinating. You should spend some time in it this week. Chapter 4 of Daniel. The, the, the entire chapter that this story takes place in. It, it is written not from like a third person narrator point of view. It's written, it is a, the first hand account. It's a letter written by Nebuchadnezzar to his entire kingdom. Testifying, telling the story of how he had a come to Yahweh moment. It starts, chapter 4, this letter starts with Nebuchadnezzar saying, I worship and honor and glorify the God of these exiles. And he, and he quotes Psalm 145, he quotes scripture. And then the end of chapter 4, he, t- he says, I worship and honor and glorify Yahweh. And then he quotes Psalm 45, he quotes more scripture. And so the whole thing is framed in worship of God and quoting the Psalms worshiping God. And in, in between is this, this firsthand. And the whole thing's written in Aramaic, the lingua franca of the day. It's, not, it's the international trade language. It's not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. It's this letter by Nebuchadnezzar, this firsthand story, this firsthand testimony of a pagan king becoming a worshiper of Yahweh. I mean, can you think of anything else in Scripture quite like that? Begins and ends in worship. The story of God pursuing him. And after this, this, we hear nothing else about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. This is the finale. And so a question for us. The first four chapters of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Who are they about Are they about these Jewish exiles? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, because Daniel's in some of the chapters, but not all of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in some of the chapters, but not all of them. As characters, they're they're pretty much the same at the beginning as at the end. They're pretty pretty flat. They kind of stay the same. There's one human character who's in all four of these chapters. Nebuchadnezzar. There's one human character who goes through this transformation This change through these four chapters. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Every every chapter, one, two, three, and four, each one ends with this summary of what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking about Yahweh and his people. Chapter one, he's oblivious. He just says, "Whoa, these teenagers, these teenage exiles, they're really wise. That's it. Chapter two, it ends by saying, well, this, this, this Yahweh seems to be the revealer of mysteries. Chapter three, he goes farther. He says, this Yahweh, he can thwart my plans. We better not cross him. And then chapter 4, it begins and ends with, I worship and honor and follow Yahweh, and quoting scripture, saying that Yahweh is the God of gods. It's, It's Nebuchadnezzar that goes through this journey. I believe Daniel 1 through 4 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar, this polytheistic pagan Babylonian king, finding Yahweh, the living God of the universe. And maybe even to put it more accurately, it's not, it's, not even, it's, it's not so much even the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's the story of the God who pursues the pagan king. The God who even pursues the king who puts his people into exile. The king who conquered Jerusalem, who took his, these teenagers, it's God pursuing this king. So that he too might know the living God. What are some implications of this? What are some implications maybe for our lives today? And I think there's a lot to be explored here. And I'll touch on just a couple. But I would encourage you to reflect, to think, to talk about what else you might... What other implications you might draw to this. But I'll just touch on a couple. One, I think there's an implication about the journey to faith is not always the straight line. That, that for the story of Nebuchadnezzar, how do you be, how do you go from how do you go from named after Nabu, your dad is trying to take over the ancient Near East to worshipper of Yahweh, quoting the Psalms. That is a distance to cover. And it doesn't just jump to chapter 4. And sometimes I think some of us have been exposed to forms of faith, forms of Christianity that get so focused on chapter 4. Get people to chapter 4. you got to be at chapter 4. That we don't recognize that it's a journey. That Nebuchadnezzar had to go to chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 before God could bring him to chapter 4. Sometimes it's not about the chapter 4 conversation. Sometimes it's celebrating and recognizing oh, you're moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Maybe you're here today and maybe your walk with God has not been a straight line. And maybe Daniel wants to affirm that that God is still pursuing you. Maybe you're here today. Maybe there's somebody in your life and you're thinking, I don't know, how would they ever become a worshiper of the living God? But my guess is, Daniel probably said the same thing about Nebuchadnezzar. How will he ever become a worshiper of the living God? But God pursued the pagan king. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, how? Maybe you're thinking about yourself. How could I ever become a worshiper of the living God? If the 30-year-old polytheistic ruler of the ancient Near East could find a way, God can find a way for you too. So one first implication, I think that that Daniel recognizes faith is a journey. And the second implication is this. The second implication is that uh, the, the God of all Scripture... Is the God who pursues people of all nations. I've had people come up to me and ask me before something along these lines. They say, "You know, Tim, I get the New Testament and, and Jesus, and God is pursuing people of all different nations, all different tribes and tongues. But in the Old Testament, it seems like He's He's just about the Jewish people. Why isn't God about all people in the Hebrew Scriptures as well?" And my answer is, "Well, He is." He is about all people. Here we have in Daniel 1-4, through the story of exile. Here we have the story of God pursuing the pagan Babylonian king. God is pursuing all people. And this is an isolated incident. In the book of Jonah, we get the story of Jonah being sent to preach to the Ninevites, the the capital of Assyria, this empire that came before Babylon. Or you could talk about the book of Ruth, when, when Ruth, this Moabite woman, is brought into the story of God. In fact, she gets a whole book of the Bible after her. God pursues all sorts of people. And there's this danger that, that you know, these, these times of exile, if we think it's just about his people, that, um, you know, we, that these times of exile, we can think it's just about surviving or getting through or just God just taking care of his people. But we, we get this story of Daniel, the exile for God, God is saying in times of exile, in times when you feel closed and imprisoned and, and, and held in and bound up, in these times, God says, I am up to things through you, even beyond you, reaching people I could reach in no other way. It's not just about you. I am the God who pursues the pagan king, even the one who put you in the situation of exile. It's a God who pursues the pagan king. And this book of Daniel is written to these people in this exilic situation. And I think maybe at first that might be difficult to hear, but I think in the end it is good news, it is good encouraging news that our God is up to bigger things pursuing people in this world. This is the God who pursues the pagan king, the God who pursues people we would never expect him to pursue. If you want to read more about this, I'd encourage you uh, a book to check out. would be The Mission of God by Christopher Wright. Does a great job. Does a great job of talking about how God is on a mission from Genesis to Revelation, exploring what that mission is. If you want to look at this theme of how God pursues people through the entirety of Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar. He's born, uh, born the son of Nabal this this ambitious ancient Near Eastern ruler. Grows up thinking he's the apple of Marduk's eye. Conquers Jerusalem, the capital city of the people of God. I mean, who could you expect less to find the living God? And yet, the living God pursues even him that he too might know, worship, and love, and trust Yahweh, the God of these exiles. I believe that was good, encouraging news for them then and there. And I believe it's a good, encouraging word for us even here today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, uh, Lord, would you help us to see our stories in light of your bigger story. Lord, I I just see how, for Daniel and his friends, that you were up to bigger things in their lives. You were up to bigger things through them, things that they might never even anticipated, uh, pursuing even those that they saw as hostile to them. And Lord, um, Lord, thank you that you do things that are unexpected. Thank you that you do not fit into our presuppositions. And Lord, would you even this morning speak to us about how we might see the places that we're in differently, how we might see the people around us differently, uh, that we could live more and more caught up into your big story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.